Welcome to Latte with a Lawyer, a podcast dedicated to bringing you the stories of some of America's most successful lawyers, figuring out what makes them tick, how they creatively solve problems, and how others aspiring to be them can follow in their footsteps. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Latte with a Lawyer. I'm your host, Jonathan Brickman. And this morning, uh, we have with us Alex Kioski from the law firm of Mandelbaum, Mandelbaum Barrett. God, I can't speak this morning. I haven't, I haven't had enough coffee, and I was going to ask you that question. How are you? Good. You get a pass. It is Monday morning, so no no worries. I'm still waking up. So anyway, just to, to continue on that thread here to keep with the theme of the show, Latte with a Lawyer, what's your morning beverage of choice? Well, like most, I guess, uh, almost everybody, coffee, but I like it very, very dark with only whole milk, just to make it caramel-colored. That's my beverage of choice. My liquid of choice is ice cold water on my face as soon as I wake up. Otherwise, okay. I do not wake up. So yeah, yeah, I'm having a hard time waking up this morning. I'm not sure why, but uh, yeah, that's what I do. And I walk my dog in the morning, come back, make make coffee, watch a little bit of the news, and get started. Oh, that's good. So uh, all right, well, listen, t- tell everybody about uh, the kind of law that you practice. Sure. Um, my current practice of law really stems from my time in government as a lawyer. I, I was a deputy attorney general with the state of New Jersey at the Division of Law. And my first, I was six years there. And my first three years uh, was as a litigator. I basically defended the state against lawsuits. So I became a trial attorney. We had a pretty heavy trial calendar, as most government attorneys do. Um, and the last three years was a little more interesting. I was a prosecutor for the professional boards prosecution section. And basically what we did was prosecuted uh, physicians before the licensing board who had issues of quality of care, impairment, misconduct, criminal fraud, things like that. So as a result, uh, because of that experience, now in the private world, I defend, mostly defend physicians and litigate on behalf of physicians. And I would say the best way to describe me, I'm an adverse action guy. Whenever a physician has anybody coming against them, whether a licensing board, a medical malpractice action, a hospital hearing, um, third-party payers, Medicare, wanting reimbursement, uh, I would be the guy you'd come to, hopefully. Got it, got it, got it. So that's interesting. So you went from one side to the other, so you know the game. Yeah, it's like most government attorneys do. Most prosecutors end up, you know, in in defense work. Oh, is that right? Okay. You have that vantage point that helps quite a bit, knowing the, the agency and how they work and how they resolve things. Yeah, that makes sense. I was a lender. I was a real estate lender at one point, and then I actually went to the other side where I was managing institutional real estate. So I knew the game. I I knew it the the mindset of of a lender. So that was kind of fun. No, that's a valuable vantage point for sure to exploit it. Um, So uh, tell me more about like the kind of uh, cases that you work on. Like, what's a typical defense case you would work on? The typical doctor would come to me um, in one of many, many ways. One would be, I just got a letter. That's usually how it starts. Or I just got a subpoena. Um, A government, this, you know, fill in the blank, government agency, regulatory agency, criminal prosecutor, licensing board just told me they want uh, my records or they want to talk to me about a patient that I had or they want to talk to me about that malpractice case I settled for $2 million and they're going to investigate me. I need your help. And uh, depending on what it is, depending on the source of that letter or subpoena, uh, I would help him out in um, defending him against any kind of discipline. And, and the reason that's very important for a physician, as opposed to you know, a lawyer, real estate agent, as any adverse actions against physicians 
get reported nationwide through an entity, a clearinghouse website called the National Practitioner Data Bank. Mm. And that could really have a lot of ramifications on a lawyer's ability to practice and his credentials and his ability to get future credentials. Because once a adverse action is on the data bank, it's permanent. Okay. Yeah, my dad was a was a doctor, orthopedic surgeon, and carried lots of malpractice insurance and uh, was sued a couple of times. I mean, I don't know how you avoid that, right? It's almost impossible. You, you can't avoid it. Anyone practicing, especially in certain more high-profile professions, uh, high-risk OBGYN, um, neurosurgery, things like that, you, you are bound to get malpractice actions. If you don't have any, that probably means you don't practice that much. It's like we yeah. say in the law, if you're a trial attorney and you've never lost a case, you probably haven't tried too many cases. Right. So, so how do you, how do you protect yourself knowing that it's going to happen? Like what's the best way to insulate, protect yourself from the inevitable? That's a good question, uh, Jonathan. I think that many ways one, and it's unfortunate, and this is a real kind of uh, lapse, I think, in, in medical education today, doctors, uh, uh, their education focuses almost exclusively on the clinical side of their practice. And it's important because one way to certainly prevent any adverse actions against you is to make sure that your quality of care is meets the standard of care. Sure. But another way would be to really educate yourself through continuing medical education that focuses on the legal and regulatory aspects of medicine. I, I'm actually, uh, I, I teach a course with a uh, institute called the uh, um, PBI, it's called the uh, Professional Boundaries Institute. It's part of UC Davis Medical School. Okay. And it's a pretty comprehensive um, ethics course and they're available uh, elsewhere as well. But it basically, uh, it, it gives doctors insight into how in the scope of their practice and in their mindset, they can prevent you know adverse actions against them. And it's basically focusing uh, on not just the clinical aspect, but on every part of your practice, thorough documentation, your interactions with patients, your uh, your clear-headedness and ability every day. You know, we just spoke about this this morning, Monday mornings, yeah. but to really focus yourself and get yourself set so that every moment you have a sort of mindfulness about what you're doing and doing it correctly in every aspect, the patient interaction, the documentation, everything else. That That's an important part of it because, you know, the, the, the medical profession is like the legal profession. It can get very overwhelming. Yeah. Um, things happen at a fast pace. And when they do, things can fall through the cracks. Yeah, I, I would think that uh, documentation is paramount. I mean, if you don't have, right, and setting expectations correctly so the patient knows exactly what to expect and what the risks are, I would think that would be incredibly important. It, it is. There's a mantra among all licensing boards across the country, and uh, it, 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 it says, if it's not in the record, it didn't happen. And that's really the mantra for all hospital medical staff as well. And um, the other thing really is that what I found, at least in my experience, I've been practicing now about 27 years, but a, a doctor will get caught up more likely with regard to documentation issues than anything else. And even adverse actions that start or begin not focused on documentation, for example, a quality of care or a, a personality issue, an impairment issue, they will pull the records in a subpoena, you know, these licensing boards, these third-party payers, criminal authorities, and they'll look at the records and they'll see that they're, they just fall by the wayside, especially with things like um, prescribing documentation or surgery. 
aftercare documentation, if it's not where it should be, that can get them in trouble by itself, mm. uh, serious trouble. So that's an issue. Has litigation increased, stayed the same, or gone the other way? I think it's increased. Uh, what's happened in medicine in general, there are two gigantic trends in medicine over the last uh, generation or so. And one is has become an incredibly, incredibly hyper-regulated industry. Uh, I always like to say that a, a typical hospital is more regulated than a nuclear power plant on, on every level, state, federal, local, um, different agencies involved, Medicare, OSHA, the, the local Department of Health, the federal Department of Health, depending on the type of facility. And the other trend uh, more interesting, and I know it's it's been the bane of doctors' existence, is um, managed care, third-party mm -hmm. payers and insurance companies. Um, I, I remember, I'm old enough to remember uh, when we lived in our little apartment over in um, northern New Jersey, our kindly old doctor would come with his black bag, walk up the stairs, take care of, take a look at me at night, and my mother would pay him, and that was it, the simpler yeah, days right. of medicine. Now it's all insured. Uh, there's an insurance company rubric over everything. And with that comes uh, very complicated guidelines regarding coding and billing, uh, which are sometimes, you know, uh, hard to keep track of and hard to comply with. And that that's a whole nother part of medicine that doctors deal with. And, and this is why there's A, more actions and B, more lawsuits. So it's a tough racket now for doctors. Yeah, yeah, no, I think. And, and yet everyone has access to the internet and information Everybody becomes sure. an armchair doctor, right? They, they do, and there's more reporting, uh, not just the data bank, but uh, <clears throat> years and years ago, before you and I or our fathers or grandfathers were born, um, the practice of medicine was self-regulated. Doctors had a guild. They had a medical society um, in New Jersey. Uh, the New Jersey Medical Society is actually the oldest professional society in the United States. Hmm. It began in 1766 in the days when doctors themselves, um, they ran discipline, they ran education, they ran uh, everything uh, that the government later in the 20th, 20th century, the government took that over. And um, I think it's safe to say without angering anybody, but when government takes over, it, uh, the regulations tend to expand. And that's right. what's happened over the last hundred years. But what, did the government step in in response to ethical issues or lack of self-governance? Usually that's what happens, right? There's three um, <clears throat> primary areas uh, where doctors can uh, get in trouble. And I, I always say it's quality of care, which would be medical malpractice, negligence, a, a lack of adhering to the what we call the standard of care for clinical yeah. practice, whatever that is. Sure. Another would be misconduct, and that would be things like insurance fraud, uh, boundary violations with a patient, inappropriate behavior. And the last but not least would be impairment. Doctors, again, very stressful profession. They can get caught up in um, alcohol, substance abuse, or even um, uh, for some of them, latent mental illness that kind of was always there and the stress of the profession yeah. brings it out, uh, psychosexual issues and other things. So those are the three areas. And, and most of the licensing boards are structured so that they can deal with those issues separately. For example, a lot of the licensing boards have an impairment committee where they'll refer a doctor to a professional program if they see that the primary issue is impairment. Yeah. I mean, without, I mean, my dad actually went through that, through that. A lot of doctors in that era, because, you know, you forced sure. it. First of all, it doesn't even make any sense. The uh, talk about standard of care to be up all night, right? And then expect to be 
in the OR the next day made, made no sense. But a lot of those doctors got hooked on amphetamines back in yeah. the day. So I got to yeah, that. That's, that. It, it, that's very true. It's funny you say that. There was an era when amphetamines became the drug of choice for both doctors and truck drivers, both because of the need to yeah. stay awake, stay alert. Yeah. Crazy. So I, yeah, I, I've yeah. seen some of that stuff firsthand. And uh, it's interesting. I mean, you know, once you get in, you, you got to claw yourself back. But yeah, the licensing board takes over. And anyway, it's, uh, it, I guess, uh, you know, it's one of the, uh, the risk of the profession. It is. There's a lot of risks in the profession. And one of them is certainly getting caught up in a licensing board. Although doctors, it's strange, but I found in general, there seems to be more stress and more worry and more anxiety surrounding medical malpractice. I think mm -hmm. because they're so it's so publicized and it's right. uh, you hear about these big awards, but um, a medical malpractice action in general, you have insurance. It's the same as if on your sure. home you have insurance when somebody trips or falls, you don't like it, but you report it to the insurance company. Insurance company assigns you a lawyer. They completely defend and indemnify you. They pay whatever the judgment is if, yep. if it's high or not. Uh, hopefully it doesn't exceed the policy, but, but with medical board actions, you know, if your license is taken away, uh, number one, it's, it's not always covered by insurance. And if it is, it's usually a limited amount, but number two, um, you lose your livelihood and you losing your livelihood means, you know, your, your mortgage, your kids in college, your, yeah. your retirement. So it's, it's a really serious issue when a physician is summoned or investigated by the licensing board, not only for the reporting I described before, but just in general for whatever the ramifications may be, of and whatever discipline is invoked sure yeah it's it's different than other cases because it's personal right with the uh the practitioner yes it's absolutely personal that's the best way to put it it's his license not the hospitals not the practice but him or her right right is there any case that stands out that you've worked on that was a memorable case wow yes um when i first as i told you i spent the first three years as just a litigator so yeah. litigator and then went to the board of medical examiners. Now I had a good knowledge of medicine and the practice of medicine because I handled a lot of medical malpractice and personal injury cases um, with the, uh, the former branch of the AG, but I've got to the professional board prosecution section. And there was this very wily adversary who was defending a doctor in OBGYN. And he somehow managed through the court to have the entire professional board prosecution section conflicted out of a case so where none of them could prosecute the case against his doctor so who got the case the new member of the professional board prosecution section that had no knowledge of it but worse nobody in that section was able to help me or mentor me on that case or prepare mm. me so they just handed me the file they said we're conflicted out we can't help you and you have to try it yourself and i didn't mind but it was a very complicated case it involved, um, strangely, an OBGYN who was doing a procedure called a hysteroscopy, which is basically the cleaning the inside of a, a woman's womb. And it's done with a tool. And um, the tool they use, complicated, but it has a cutting instrument, a light to look inside because it's done remotely by camera, the camera, and then a descending a sort of um, liquid that comes out and cleans the inside. Yeah. And then the, re the, the, the rest comes out into a container. Well, this doctor evidently used sterile water um, instead of a saline solution. Makes a mm -hmm. difference because when you clean the inside of the wound, the uh, vascular tree opens up the bloodstream. And if water gets out inside the bloodstream, as opposed to saline type of solution, which you can inject, but water 
it lyses the blood cells. It causes them to break apart. Uh, blood cells that, that part of it has potassium goes to your heart, which is electric and can stop it. And that's mm -hmm. what happened to this woman on the surgery. She died. Ooh. So that's a case I prosecuted. But it was difficult. Two experts, two very high level experts from out of state and me by myself in a new section prosecuting it against two lawyers uh, who knew everything about the case because they've been with it for years. So that was that was difficult, to say the least. Uh, that would probably be the most memorable wow. case I remember. And did you did you prevail? I prevailed. Uh, uh, excuse me. The doctor received a suspension. Um, of his license, it was notarized. It was a big case because it was very unusual yeah. for somebody to kind of experiment with different um, mediums, different solutions like that, that type of risk that a doctor would take. Um, but it, uh, it was sad um, because the mother was outside. Uh, she was at the, the mother of the victim was in the room the whole time while we tried the case, which also put a bit of pressure on me. You know, you and your prosecutor and you know there's a family member involved. It adds a whole nother dimension to it. Oh, sure. Let's uh, just to pivot a little bit here. So um, I, I saw in your background that it looks like you were a Marine. Yes. So yes. how did you make the pivot to uh, becoming a lawyer? T tell me about that journey. Well, I'll try to shorten that story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I came from, uh, I grew up in uh, Northeastern New Jersey, very close to New York City, right across the river, a town called Weehawken. If you I, ever I, I New know York it. City, I, no, I if know you've it. gone through the Lincoln Tunnel, right yes. on the other side is my little town. Okay. But um, I have a blue collar background. My mother and father never graduated high school. And my dad was a construction worker. And um, my sisters never graduated high school because at that time in the 70s, you could still get decent uh, sure. you know, jobs in a, a very big industry factory area I lived in. But um, I also never finished high school and I joined the Marines. I thought a good opportunity. I'll get to travel. I so first time on an airplane, I get down to Paris Island and um, somebody told me, just stay out of trouble and you'll have a great military career. And I followed that advice. I did three years and uh, four years in the infantry. I traveled to, I was in Southern California. I was in Okinawa, Japan and went through the Far East, Philippines, Hong Kong, Thailand. But then I re-enlisted for embassy duty. And uh, during the Cold War, I got assigned to Moscow in what was then the USSR, now Russia. Um, and I we used to speak with the diplomats there because I always had this interest in foreign policy history. And there was one particular diplomat. I was sitting in his office and I remember looking at the wall and he had his college degree and um, he had a law degree. And I said, you have a law degree? He said, yeah, I became a lawyer, but then I decided to get in the foreign service. And that day it struck me. I said, boy, we've had long conversations together. I'm just as smart, just as knowledgeable as him. All I need is that law degree. <laughs> so yeah. You know, so this blue collar kid said, as soon as I get out of the Marines, I'm going to finish college. I'm going to go to law school. And back then you could pay your way through. I, I was a bouncer over in some nightclubs in the city and I worked <laughs> loading docks and did other jobs. And everybody yeah. says, wow, that's so great. I said, no, I said, the kids today have the disadvantage because back then you could work your way through school. Right. Tuition was cheaper. Now it's much more expensive. So I became a lawyer and that was it and um it seemed to suit me i was never good at math and science and i'm sure you've heard that before i've heard that every time i always find that interesting like you can't be good at math and science to become a lawyer it's but you're right almost everybody says that yeah that's the key um unless you're a patent attorney yeah patent or engineering there's a lot of uh complex areas of law that would really be better if you had a that kind of background and um, right. a life sciences as well so you grew up in New Jersey. I saw that, right? Oh, so we, I know, I know. Well, I, I spent many years going into New York City. My brother lives on the uh, east side. My okay. wife, 
lived there for 10 years. So I, I know New York. Well, I grew up in Boston. Oh, okay. Another even great up, city. Yeah. Even though I'm down in South, I'm in South Florida, we kept moving down the coast. <laughs> but I know Weehawk, and in fact, we yeah, Weehawk and Hoboken, can write all those. Look, staring at the Lincoln Tunnel, right? And they were so different when I grew up. They were very industrial, you know, factory based. A lot of embroidery factories. It was yeah. Union Union City, which was right in the middle, was the embroidery capital of the world. But um, it's changed a lot. It's become very, very gentrified, which I suspect a lot of areas sure. of too. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. It's total. It's totally changed. Yeah. Um. Interesting. So, any um, any siblings? Sure. Well, I had an older sister. She passed away with this uh, first round of COVID that came oh, along. Oh, jeez. Sorry. And I have another uh, older sister who works uh, in the banking industry. But no other lawyers. You're the. You're the. No, lawyer. nobody else. Uh, nobody else attended college. Just me. So it's interesting. So first generation. That that's a great story. I mean, I I, I went to school with. I think of one person in specifically who parents were like immigrants from Italy. The mother yeah. was a seamstress. The father worked in the construction industry. He became a, you know, he went to school, became a chemical engineer, and then became a physician. I mean, those, those yeah. are, to me, those are the greatest stories. Yeah. And then you think about it, it's it's almost ironic. But my dad, when I was 16, he saw that I didn't care about school. I My thing in school was I just loved to read. I only wanted to read books. I used to tell the teachers, if you give me a book to read, I'll study. But if it's just these stupid textbooks, I don't care. I didn't care about anything. I just wanted sure. to read. And, um, I remember in school, the, the my dad coming and saying, listen, you're 16. You could come with me in a construction job, be an apprentice. You'll have vacation. You'll have annuity. You'll have great pay. You could retire young. And uh, there, there's kind of a side of me that regrets not doing that. Really? <laughs> well, yeah. because because I, you, you don't foresee when you're younger what the economy is going to be like. And now, right. as opposed to then, uh, there are very few private pensions left. Um, and people are no longer retiring between 50 and 60. They're staying on. I think a lot of most of the law firms I'm familiar with, the leadership is folks in their 70s and 80s. Yeah, you know? really? Yeah. But you can still make a good living at being in the trades, can't you? I think that's swinging back a little bit. I think it depends on the trades. And I think it's yeah. like anything else. It really depends on your your passion, your motivation level, you know, your entrepreneurship. That That's the key. I think that's something you have to bring into any profession. Yeah, if you repair, you know, lawnmowers, if you really can, you know, widen your your network and make more money and hire people, you know, the same formula. Yeah, I, I, I'm having this conversation with my kids as it's just starting, you know, college. Yeah, sure. It, it really comes down to motivation, grit, right? Yeah. Networking, Absolutely. right? It's a, it's, a, it's a pretty simple formula, but you can't expect things to just happen. No, no. Right. It's yeah, either it catches or not. And it's like if you ever had kids in sports, it's usually the same algorithm. They start out where they learn the fundamentals, like with basketball. I know how to dribble. I know how to rebound. I know how to shoot. I know how to move the ball. But there's that spark that has to hit yeah. where they get it. It's competitive. It's passionate. You got to want to win. You got to be aggressive. And it's the same with work. It's the same with a profession. You can learn the fundamentals, but you got to have the passion. A absolutely. Do you have a family yourself? Do you have kids? Yeah, I have a daughter who's in basketball in high school and a son uh, who's uh, nine. So he's he's doing well himself. Both of them. It's funny. You look at your kids and you see a yeah. different generation, different opportunities. And when you grew up as I did, you know, you know, you'll never be able to really convey to them what it's like to have very little and, you know, just have only the way forward, not back. You know, yeah, yeah I, no, it's I, interesting, had no, yeah. I had no money to depend on. I had no parents. I, uh, you know, that had no parents that had a lot of money and. 
you know, my dad, who I loved dearly when he passed away, you know, he was on disability. It wasn't a big uh, inheritance to, uh, you know, look forward to or anything like that. So it was always very much focused on self-reliance and trying to get kids uh, these age to really, you know, understand that and to follow that path is difficult because you got to have that hunger. And if you don't have the hunger, it's, it's tough. Yeah. Th th there's no, I, I, I have these conversations all the time. You're almost like penalizing your kids when, when they come, when they right they're they're in a nice comfy environment. It's like, they don't have that passion and desire many times, unfortunately. No, they, they don't understand right? what it's like. If they take it for granted is what it is. It's really taking things for granted through no fault of their own. They're just, you know, you're used to, you have this, you have that, you don't want for anything, you know, they don't, uh, and the food's always good. It's always on the table. They've never, really understand uh, that to them macaroni and cheese and chicken pot pies is a treat for me it was you know <laughs> that, that's what you're eating pal that's it yeah, and, but yeah. the thing is you didn't know any better because everyone you didn't know any better and you were happy yep, yep exactly hamburger we helper yeah yep. hamburger helper a, or whatever we had meatloaf exactly i had a great childhood wouldn't trade it for anything in the world i, I always ate always never hungry never cold yeah i'm sure it was fun too being outside of new york city i mean oh it sure was lot, lots of fun yeah, and, and Weehawken at that time, too, was more blue-collar. There was a freight yard down in the waterfront, so all condominiums now, but we used to go down those freight yards. Oh, that was fun. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I, I bet. Um, so what would you tell someone today? I mean, again, based on this conversation, would you recommend going to law school? What would you tell them? You know, whenever somebody says, should I go to law school? it's the same as asking, should I eat at this restaurant or should I see this movie, right? It's all subjective. Sure. And the first question is, who are you? And if you're looking at me and saying, do you enjoy the law? I say, sure. I enjoyed the Marine Corps too. Do you want to join the Marine Corps? Is that something you want to do? Well, so think about who you are and what you want and what your personality is. And the two things that I always tell folks who want to be lawyers, I say, I hope you love to read and I hope you love to write and I mm. hope you're good at both. That to me is the foundation, the bedrock of law is reading, comprehending, understanding, analyzing, and writing, and being able to convey and communicate verbally or otherwise, but it always starts with writing your opinion. And that's the key. If that's something you think you'd be good at, and that's something you think you could do for long hours, um, it might be something for you, you know, uh, I would say, try it, do a little internship somewhere, you know, even as in college work in a law firm in college, which you can do just to kind of observe, see what they do, look at the documents, hear the cases they're involved in and decide if it's for you. That's it. Um, the, the, the good thing I think about law is that you can go to law school, but you do not have to go in a courtroom and be a, like a quote unquote lawyer. You can go into business. You can go into government. You can go into not for profit. You can do a lot of good things. Um, I think it was Charles Hamilton, Houston, who was uh, the dean of uh, Howard University Law School. He he was really the mentor for a lot of African-American attorneys that overturned yeah. Pro. But he said, and it's of course, it's an exaggeration, but he said a, a lawyer is either an agent for social change or a parasite on society. So that's the two extremes, but somewhere in between, you know, you could find your niche in the law. You could yeah, do yeah. good. Got it. So those are the critical skills. Reading and writing, you would say, are the most important that's the, the basic fundamental skills of a lawyer. Absolutely. If you do not have those skills, let's put it this way. Yes. If the skills you lack and you don't think you want to improve upon, I would say the law is not for you. Got it. Okay, good. 
Yeah, I would say that's pretty consistent with what I've heard. Although, as you as you suggested, there are many flavors of law. You don't have to be a trial attorney. You don't have to go into a courtroom. Well, I think the minority are. I, I think the minority of lawyers actually appear in courtrooms and try cases. Yeah. I do. Do you get to try cases anymore these well, days? <clears throat> well, COVID has put a damper on it, but now it's opening up a bit in the New Jersey court. So I, I do have trials scheduled again before COVID came. The last trial I had was, of course, late 2019 yeah. before March 20 came. And sure. there was a lot in the pipeline, but they all got pushed down the docket. Okay. And you, your firm, it looks like, does both plaintiff and defense work. Is that true? We do. We, we do everything. We're a very uh, uh, full-service firm. Um, we're not focused on any one area. There, there's pretty much, we have a heavy litigation, uh, not only a large healthcare section, but a heavy commercial and business litigation section as well. Okay. Um, so, and everything that stems from that, uh, different areas, um, we've grown considerably, uh, even during this pandemic, we've gotten a lot of laterals and a lot of good, um, a lot of good lawyers and partners. Oh, good. How, how many lawyers at the firm? We've got about a, it's hard to keep count because they're coming in all the time, but yeah. I think it's somewhere between 100, 110. Oh, it's a good sized firm. Yeah, it's a good sized firm. For Jersey, it's short. That would be a, a large firm. Yeah. And why do you think you're attracting attorneys? The culture. Yeah. We, uh, I've been and worked a lot of places in the law and, and outside the law, but this is a very collaborative group. Um, there's a loyalty here. Because it's it's a two way street type of loyalty, you know. You get back what you give. I think. Yeah, yeah. Everybody participates. They encourage everybody to participate. They encourage everybody to collaborate, and it's just a good, uh, friendly, very friendly, uh, working environment. Excellent. I was going to ask you what what do you want to leave with the audience about your firm, but you've pretty much told me. Everything. Oh yeah, no. You take a look uh, again. We're, we're somebody that gives a personal touch to everything, and we're available. Um, one thing I think that, uh, and it's something I swore off many years ago is, um, not getting back to the client. I think if there's anything that drives people crazy and, and mm. we spoke about medicine, but I think it's the same for law or medicine. When somebody doesn't return your calls, when somebody doesn't get back to you, when somebody seems as though they're just not interested or they're too busy. And that's one thing I, I pride myself here. And I, I'm proud to be part of this firm is it's really, it's hands-on attention. Mm. A lot of us, our clients do too. We've been used our own firm and our own services of our uh, lawyers for one reason or another. Yeah, yeah. But I was going to, you know, that goes for any business, frankly. If you're not responsive, you're going to have problems with your business, I think. But I mean, there's lots of software to help you manage that now, right? I was absolutely. And, you know, I think it's a, it's a basic habit. Um, since this came along, you know, people say, oh gosh, I hate these things. I don't want to be involved in it. I think it's absolutely essential to use new technology. If you have an iPhone, if you have documents you could review on your iPhone, on a device, no matter where you are, no matter what particular place yeah. you may be, as long as you have reception. And there's just no excuse anymore for not getting back to a client or a colleague or an adversary. There's no excuse. And what you have to do is check, right? You got to check your emails, sure. check your text. And it's so much easier to say, Thank you, Don. I heard you. I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Let's set up a call for tomorrow rather than I'll wait till tomorrow and the next day and I'll get back to him. You know, it. nobody wants that. You don't want that. I don't want that. Right. Well, that's a personality trait. People, you know, some people are just more responsive than others. Doesn't yeah. matter what, you, what software you have, right? Right. Well, but, you know, people will say, oh, the iPhones are the bane of our existence. Yeah, they are. But they're also an essential part of your business and you, and you have to use it. And because others, your your clients are using it, 
you you have an obligation to use yeah. it as well. That's true. I like voice recognition now. Not, uh, typing on a on a mobile phone is not easy, right? So I like to talk into it now. I haven't typed on a mobile phone. I don't think in two or three years. I if I can't record like this, I wait till I get reception. Oh really? I, do I, do, I have not used my fingers in many years. Ah, there you go. We're the same. Yeah. But you worry about the uh, the punctuation, or did you get that? I, right? I just I I first you know dictate it, and then I'll send it to myself in a mail in an email and then i'll look it over and correct it yeah ah, okay, okay. i've been doing it for years it's so much easier I, I dictate letters everything that way oh it's so much easier oh absolutely i did whether it's text searching on the internet emails always about voice i'm just spoiled it, you know it's amazing I, I actually years ago i was involved with a business where we tested hardware and software products and i saw the very first generation of voice recognition products they were terrible Texas Instruments was one of the pioneers. It was another company. It was a Microsoft company. And they were really bad. It's amazing how long it took for them to be. Now they're very good. They're almost almost error-free if you take yes. the time, right? It's advanced quite a bit. Incredible, really. And it's, uh, it's a shame when lawyers don't utilize this technology when it comes around. And that includes not just you know things like iPhones and voice recognition, but um, document storage, discovery, some of these great um, programs they have for oh, yeah. uh, really saves so much time. You know, oh, sure. Just for you, for your client, your client's cost. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure you use things like Westlaw or whatever things for, you know, uh, e-discovery. Absolutely. And it's it's amazing because at least for me, as I said, I've been practicing about 27 years now, but starting out in trials and after the trial was over or the jury went home at 435, waiting in line for the pay phones, they can call back to the office and tell them what happened. And to from then to now, it's just a just incredible transformation really is. Yeah, excellent. All right. Well, good stuff. I will. Uh, we'll we'll wrap this up now. It's uh, good to uh, listen to your story and type of law you practice for everybody. Um, Alex Kioski, two keys with an O in the middle. Yeah, you go. Uh, <laughs> OS, right. Right. <laughs> From the law firm uh, Mandelbaum Barrett in uh, in New Jersey, you guys are just located in New Jersey. We're we'll locate also. We have an office in Florida and Colorado as well oh, in yeah. New York City. Excellent. And this uh, this show is sponsored by Emotion Track with a C, and we are a legal tech platform that helps litigators prepare for mediation and trials with our Insights platform. Thanks again, Alex. It was uh, good to, good to spend time with you. You as well, Jonathan. All the best. Have a you good bet. holiday.